Welcome to Voices of Experience, your audio and video access to interviews, insights, and information that will help you speak more and speak better. Voices of Experience is brought to you by the National Speakers Association. Now, here are your hosts, Stephen Iverson, CSP, and Pilar Ortiz. We welcome you to the July-August 2016 edition of Voices of Experience. We have some fascinating guests, and in our conversation with these successful speakers, you will hear them share knowledge, effective tips, and proven techniques. Stephen and I cannot believe it's already a year of us co-hosting this audio magazine. I know, it's just gone by so fast. It has been a pleasure producing it and a lot of valuable content that we know and celebrate has helped many of us growing our businesses. So thank you for being a great audience. It has been an honor for us. Dr. Michelle May, CSP, retired from her medical practice to share her message of mindful eating through speaking, writing, training, and licensing. And she has licensed over 500 health and wellness professionals and several large organizations to offer My Hungry Mindful Eating program and trainings worldwide. She shares in this interview how we can leverage our expertise as well. Next topic in VOE is one of those that we should be thinking more about, but we don't necessarily do it. Is now with me, Michelle May, MD, CSP. And we are going to talk about two different topics. One, the mindful eating, which has been one, her topic when she is speaking in front of audiences, but how she made it in a business model very profitable and successful and how she was able to leverage it. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, glad to be with you. First of all, it's a challenge, not only when we are on the road, but on a daily basis to be making decisions about what we eat, and we are always running, and we don't have enough time, and airports. So what will be the first suggestion that you tell your clients, your patients? You know, I I don't think that diets work, and I don't think most of us have really found that diets work, at least long term. So what I tell people is not to do anything that you're not willing to do every day for the rest of your life. In other words, instead of trying to follow a rigid diet and counting and weighing and measuring your food, act as if you are that healthy person who makes those balanced choices on a day-to-day basis. So in other words, no restriction, no deprivation, but being mindful of the choices that you make. So for example, you're in an airport, you see a sign or you smell Cinnabon or whatever that trigger is, and suddenly the idea of eating pops into your head. Instead of starting to count the calories or thinking, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, the first question to ask yourself is, am I hungry? Because that question, am I hungry, helps you recognize whether this is I want to eat or I need to eat. And then you're in a position to make the next decision. What happens if you say, yes, I'm hungry, but you are not really hungry? How do you recognize that? Because this is one of those things that it's easy to say, Mm -hmm. but not so easy to do. 
Well, that's why I have an entire business around teaching people I this. I was going to go in that in <laughs> so, so hunger is a physical set of symptoms. It's not a thought. It's not a craving. It's a true sign as if your own fuel gauge is letting you know that your body is getting low on energy. If you're not having physical symptoms of hunger, it's probably a trigger or some other craving going on. Very good. So now let's talk about that business. How did you do it? Is something that you develop online and people know? Well, uh, and originally I just was developing workshops. I was practicing medicine. I had a family medicine practice and on the side on my half days off, I developed this workshop that was based on teaching people mindful eating skills out of my own personal journey with this and wanting to help my patients. People began to ask me to talk about that and come to conferences and speak about that. And that's how my, my speaking business started. And then we published our first book and then our second, third, and fourth book and developed an online training program. So we now teach other people how to offer the workshops that we developed for their, that we develop for their clients, their organizations, their companies, their communities. So it's really become an entire um, way of spreading the message about mindful eating. But it's not a licensed program. It's not a franchise. It is. It is? Okay, let, let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. How it, it works. How does it work? Okay, so we have um, people who contact us. They want to learn how to offer mindful eating to their clients or their patients or in their workplace. They can come to us for training. We train online, so I don't actually do the training day-to-day. -day. It's all recorded. We send them the materials. They do a self-paced training program, and they earn a license. So when they have completed the training and they have the license and they can offer those programs, we um, make a small amount of money per participant in each of their programs. And in return, we send them our books and workbooks for them to use. And then we relicense them on an annual basis. So it provides them with, a, with an opportunity to help their patients and clients and community. And it provides us with ongoing income and more importantly, a, an army of people out there that are spreading the message of mindful eating, which is after all why I do this work. Are these doctors? Um Doctors, dietitians, uh, health coaches, personal trainers, uh, psychologists, all kinds, all kinds of people in the health and wellness field. What percentage are you speaking? What percentage are you on the road speaking all the time? No, not necessarily. Um, no, I, I, from an income standpoint, probably about half of my income comes from online training and licensing. Um, another another 25% is from products and then another 25% from speaking. So speaking becomes a way of helping to spread the word about the message and both for licensees, but also for people who might be interested in our workshops and books. So you are not practicing anymore as a family physician, and now this is your business. And how? why would you recommend it? Why that switch work for you and for all these other people that you are helping? I retired in 2006. I started the company Am I Hungry in 1999. And by 2006, I realized I'd worked my way into two full-time jobs and I couldn't practice what I was preaching. So I had to make a choice. And it was clear to me that speaking and being able to help people with this was much more important to me at that point than working with people one-on-one -on -one in, a, in a small office in my, in my community. How are you able to let go? Because a lot of the people that are listening right now, it may be facing 
a similar situation. Mm-hmm. Two full-time jobs are doing so much or being self-employed, which is even worse than, become, than being an employee. Yeah, it's difficult. I think um, if I had it to do over again, I would have saved up about a year of income because it took about a year for me to replace my income as a physician. I needed probably to have saved more money, but we were able to take out a loan and exist on that year and the company's been profitable since that time. Going back to the mindful eating and the daily routine, is there such a thing as a routine? Do you add meditation? Do you add... Well, mindful uh, mindful eating, I think the simplest way to think about it is eating with intention and attention, which is just purpose and awareness. When I have an intention to feel better when I'm done eating than I did when I started, then that will set the tone for every choice that I make in my eating that day, from what to eat, how I eat it, and how much of it I eat, and then where I invest that energy. So those kinds of questions really allow me to move into any situation without knowing what's going to be served, but I can still make decisions that work for me because my intention is to feel good and I feel better when I eat well. And then eating with attention is just being mindful of the choices that you make. What I love about this and where it shows up in my speaking and my work is that when people learn how to eat more mindfully and eat with intention and attention, they learn how to live with intention and attention. And speaking about our businesses, intention and attention will take us to a different place. Exactly. Thank you, Michelle May, MD, CSP. Thank you very much for sharing this with us today. Mm, My pleasure. Travel insurance typically covers such things as the cost of your lost baggage, canceled flights, but it may or may not cover costs of medical attention that you might need while abroad. Travel medical insurance covers the cost of various levels of overseas medical treatment. Great opportunity to think about as we listen to what happened to John Palombo in one of many business trips. Do you have travel medical insurance or do you have just travel insurance? That's a question that some of us ask if we are traveling and working overseas, but sometimes we just think the credit card has it. And John Palombo is here to share with us an experience that now we are laughing about, but in the moment that it happened in 2013, it wasn't funny at all. Thank you for being here and sharing with us about that experience in Morocco. Yes, my pleasure. I was, uh, just to to get to the point quickly, I was traveling in Morocco. I was in the city of Marrakesh. I was in the open marketplace, Yamin El Fanad, when someone grabbed my phone and passport. Everyone has asked me, why would you chase somebody in an open marketplace? You don't think about it when they're right in front of you and you feel like you can grab them. But I ran after him, and a moment later, I found myself flying through the air, and I was now laying in the streets of Marrakesh, and both shoulders were shattered simultaneously in the fall. Um, I went to the hospital there in Marrakesh. They said, you need surgery. I said, "Uh, I don't thinks here (laughs) and I had to ask someone to get my phone and hit the button for my travel medical carrier because my arms were completely gone at that point and they called talked to the doctors and said we will be bringing you home and I 
from that point forward understood the value of travel medical insurance and became an expert on it. Um, five days later, I did get back into the United States, but they did send a skilled nurse after me. Had to. I had no arms. I couldn't eat. I couldn't feed. I couldn't bathe. I couldn't even shave. And so he came to get me, got me home, and brought me to a hospital back in the United States, which is what I needed. So it's travel medical insurance, not just travel insurance. A lot of us have the travel insurance, but the medical is the key word there, isn't it? The medical is the key word. Um, When you go to buy an airline ticket, a lot of people, you know, it says, do you want to buy this insurance? And sometimes it will be all-inclusive for $30, $40, $50, whatever they're charging. Here's the reality. Most people don't get it. They don't check it. They say, I don't need it. I don't want it. It's an extra fee. Airline tickets are already expensive enough as it is. And so they they don't buy that. When in reality, it's probably the best investment you'll ever make because if you appear, and by the way, you don't have to travel outside of the country. Most travel insurance covers you once you're more than 50 or 100 miles away from your home. So if you're driving or you're, uh, I started to say take a bus, but who takes the bus? Right? <laughs> who knows the train? Uh, or train, but wh- however you're getting there, once you get more than 100 miles away from home, Something happens. It's easy to slip and break a wrist, an arm, a leg, eat some bad food, get food poisoning. We don't realize it because we figure we're such seasoned travelers. But there I was on the other side of the world, as seasoned of a traveler as you could get, and still had two shattered shoulders that had to be replaced medically in the United States. I didn't want to do that in another country. I wanted to do it where I could come back and have warranty work done, you know, where they knew they could take care of me. And I ended up spending uh, three months just in a nursing facility for rehab. So travel medical is the important part, and I don't buy it on a trip-by-trip basis. I buy an annual policy, which mine comes through American Express. However, you can get them through a dozen other companies that offer individual, couples, and entire family year-long policies, and I encourage anyone who travels, especially in our group, to get and find out about travel medical insurance to cover them year-round. And you buy yours through American Express, and that made me think about credit cards. Sometimes we think, oh, I do have that insurance through my credit card, but that's not true either. That's not true. A lot of insurance will use this as one of their perks. They'll say, we have travel uh, medical advice. Uh, And that's all you're getting. In other words, the ability to call the hotline and find out where there's a local doctor. Since If you're in France, for instance, they'll tell you in English how to find an English-speaking doctor or a hospital to go to. But that's where they draw the line. It does not include what I got, which was a a jet home. Had I had an even worse emergency, it would have been a private jet home. This was just first-class tickets back on Delta back to the United States with my escort sitting in first class because he had to feed me also. Mm-hmm. So two first-class tickets immediately back to the United States and all the expenses that were incurred to get there. Travel advice is a big difference than, <laughs> than somebody who performs. In this case, my insurance performed. Good. And well, if you didn't have that, it would have been a totally different story today. It would have been a totally different story and a very expensive trip back home to book Uh, tickets in high season. I was in Marrakesh, Morocco during high season. Getting a plane out was even difficult because they were booked. So um, I am a believer in travel medical insurance. I encourage anyone who's traveling to carry this most important insurance you could ever buy. Who better to help us navigate 
global speaking and travel than the GPS girl, Karen Jacobson. Karen, it is such a delight to have you with us. Thank you. <laughs> One of the best recognized voices in the world. Yes. Wouldn't you say? Well, I do tell a lot of people where to go and what to do on a daily basis. That's right, because <laughs> you are the voice of the reason or the, the GPS girl. That's right. Yes, yeah. My voice is in uh, about 400 million devices and phones around the world. Around the world. Mm -hmm. And that's why we wanted to talk to you, because we really wanted to figure out how can we, as members of NSA, become better speakers in a global market. What ideas do you have that might help us begin that process? I think the first part is that we are not only talking about getting on a plane and traveling to another country and speaking to a global group. We're actually talking about the fact that in the United States, we have people living from all cultures around the world. So anytime we are in front of a group, having a global mindset is important. And to remember that the backgrounds people come from, the countries people come from, are from everywhere. So being able to honour every background, every culture, and and speak, uh, you know, really speak to everybody as one, that, I mean, that's a challenge. Mm -hmm. And starts with that purpose, because it is, as you said, a mindset. In your case specifically, when you travel, you have to think differently, because it takes a lot of energy. Right? It takes a lot of energy. So let's start with you, with <laughs> okay. ourselves as a person. Well, I think that it it can seem like a really great idea to travel to other countries to speak. And if you are listening to this and you want to be able to speak in other countries, take a look at the reason why and what's driving that. And sometimes we might think it would be great to have our, you know, we love to travel, to have our travel covered, to actually go to other places and see the world. And that's fine. But to really take a look at beyond that, what our purpose is, because it is not just, it's not a simple, uh, I don't think it's a simple um, necessarily transition because you, when we travel to other countries, it takes, uh, for example, Australia, for example, you, it's a 24 hour door-to-door -door trip from where I live in New York to Australia. And then to book uh, an event where you then arrive, you speak the next day and to travel back, it's extremely wearing on the body. It is, um, it's not that healthy to be traveling in that in such an extreme way. Now, a shorter hop um, to South America, to Canada, obviously to Europe from the East Coast is not as wearing, but we still have to keep our wits about us uh, in, in a different way. We are dealing with all kinds of physical changes and challenges, um, as well as once we arrive, those cultural uh, differences in terms of delivering our material at our very best to people who have, do not have the same background as we do. So a global mindset is not just about keeping in mind the audience and the very 
different people that we're going to be speaking to and their cultures. But you're saying it also includes keeping an awareness of ourselves as we're traveling and how do we keep ourselves fresh so we're delivering a professional result. I'm absolutely. I mean, I'm interested in how can I deliver at my absolute best? How can I continue to improve what I do to impact at a greater level to be at the top of my game? And when I'm tired and I haven't eaten enough and I, you know, I don't I don't feel like I'm in control, that doesn't work for me very well. I'm not able to deliver at my very best. So those aspects we're talking about with a on a domestic level also I mean we're, we're preaching to the choir here <laughs> a lot of people who are on and off aircrafts on a daily basis it is exhausting and it is wearing and without really prioritizing our own wellness and our, our own selves burnout is just around the corner so you've created a set of practices yes that work for you I I have created those this list, uh, a checklist of outcomes to work toward over a 12 to 24 month period, like a, I guess a speaker checklist, um, so that I can really stay on track across the areas of business, my delivery, my well-being, and then my quality of life. Because the reason many of us do what we do, of course, we love it. We have an impact or a message to share, uh, but really, don't we want to also have lives that we love and mm -hmm. enjoy? Aren't we work? You know, really, the bigger picture. We we're, we all work. We earn money so that we can have a great life. We can create a life that we can enjoy, and I think sometimes we don't pay enough attention or as much attention to that area as we could. And I know for myself, I really have to pay attention to that. And we were talking earlier, even the family, that balance, you are traveling and the time zone is differently and you are in a convention and you are talking to people and you are from this meeting to the other one and it takes an effort to say, I am going to take this time to call or to FaceTime. Yeah. How do you do it? It is an ongoing challenge because I love to travel and I love to speak and I love to sing and I love meeting people and I love hearing about them and you know we're, we're all in the thick of it when we're at an event mm -hmm. often inside with the fake lighting and the fake air you know it's a very surreal kind of environment and it can really be distracting and take us away from remembering that we have loved ones that we'd like to stay connected to so I and my husband and I really, and we have a son, so he, we're, we are really rigorous about being in touch via video call, whether it be Skype or FaceTime, and if that's not possible due to connectivity, then it's it's an audio call. But really we have a, a morning and evening check-in routine, not because we have to or we have some kind of written agreement, but because we really want to. And that is a way that we stay connected. Uh, and we, we, we just both find that very, very important to our ongoing, the ongoing health of our relationship right. and our family. Now, you also have some disciplines that you practice while you're traveling so that you stay fresh, that you're not exhausted. Uh, what are some of the things that you do that uh, help you with your self-care? 
Why I think this is so very important and foundational to what I would like to call complete success is when you travel a lot, if there are practices that you are doing on a daily basis, it doesn't matter where you are, you're going, it's going to feel normal. And I think it's, it's out of a desire to create this normality whether I am away in that fake kind of air and, and lighting environment or at home. And I have a meditation practice. I know that word scares some people. You can call it quiet time. You can call it anything you like, but taking a period of time where you are just able to be silent and reflective. And I so every morning, first thing, I have a 15-minute meditation that I do right away and I read my goals straight after that every day I find that very centering and it gets me completely connected with myself straight straight up in the morning um, especially when the schedule is crazy it is important to me to set my alarm 15 minutes earlier and do that and I start the day in a whole different mindset Right. Uh, I my exercise of choice is yoga, and it's taken me a long time to work this out. I used to sacrifice doing the the yoga practice that I wanted to do when I was traveling, and then try and cram it in when I got home. And I finally worked this part out, and I have an audio that I have with me, and I will practice yoga four times a week wherever I am in the world. Um, it's only a thirty minute audio, but that. And is the foundation of my exercise, and then in addition, I have other practices and other walking and and things that I can add to it. But just knowing I'm doing that every other day is a huge part of keeping myself centered and well. Hydration is huge. You, you almost can't drink enough water. It's especially with the with being uh, on no, aer- aeroplanes. It's creating those routines. I'm being a little more practical packing. <laughs> you are an expert, my friend. You posted this picture on Facebook and you traveled for eight or ten days with a carry-on. Yes. And you carry product and books and yes. your clothes. <laughs> yes. Uh, what is the secret? I, I really like to make every aspect of my life as efficient and effective and as streamlined as possible. And it's, I'm constantly looking at how can I make that part of things better. But for many years, I, I roll all my... So now we're going to get into the really practical <laughs> tips. I roll all of my clothing. Mm-hmm. And you can fit almost twice as many items in a suitcase when you are rolling them. And gosh, I, I used to really limit the number of shoes. I think shoes can be the, the space issue but on this particular trip I managed to pack four pairs of shoes and still have room for books and CDs and and handouts so but I was committed I think it comes from a commitment to carry on I really think that's where it comes from I do not want to check a bag I do not want to do it and every now and then I'll be like I should just relax and check a bag well I do not want to stand at a carousel for 45 minutes. And that's often what happens in New York, unfortunately. Uh, and maybe it happens in other places as long as as well. But when you travel frequently, 
standing around waiting for a bag when you have somewhere to be is is really deflating. So for me, it's a commitment to carry on, and I really think very carefully about the mixing and matching of my wardrobe. Um, I think one of the traps when packing is thinking I'll just take this just in case. Now the just in case items are the really the root of the problem. Mm -hmm. Have a purpose for every item that's going into that suitcase and when you're starting to Re rehabilitate yourself from the just-in-case <laughs> additions. <laughs> the just in case Allow case. yourself maybe two little just-in-case items. But really, how, how often do we, you know, get home and realise we didn't wear a number of the items that we took or uh, use? Right? I have an idea. You just pack a just-in-case suitcase and leave it at home. That's perfect. <laughs> or someone can just send it if need be. But I, I really, there are a few of the of the items, but I think it comes from the commitment to making sure I can fit everything into my carry-on. And then I have the largest carry-on you're allowed to have. And then I have a, the, the largest personal item additional bag. And my purse fits into that and my computer, so then I can, once I'm on the plane, I can take that out, and really I've got three pieces, but it was condensed to two. So I, you know, it has been very, very well <laughs> thought through as a strategy, but you can do this. I know you can do it this. It works out, absolutely. It, it saves you time and makes you more flexible with your time and it's money, of course. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Karen. It has been a pleasure, and we will see you in an airport, some place, some city, <laughs> in some country. Where you will have reached your destination. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Have you ever had one of those moments when you were on stage giving a presentation and suddenly realized you're not making the connection? They're not laughing at the jokes. There is no curiosity in the eyes that you usually see when you're presenting. And in that moment, there's a little panic. And our drive, our need to be perfect in the presentation kicks in. And suddenly we disconnect even more. In this interview with Monica Wofford, CSP, you're going to discover some things that you can do to be real, to be sincere, to really connect with your audience before, during, and after your presentation. And some of these methods that she's going to present to you will help you to overcome the disconnecting behaviors that keep you from a long-term, sustainable business. Monica Wofford, CSP, thank you for joining us here at VOE today. My pleasure. I know, I read one time you put on social media, and I think you read something on LinkedIn about authenticity, about how to keep it real. So that is a topic that I would like to talk to you about today. Absolutely. We're speakers. We are all over the place. We want to do it better every time. We want to. But it's not about being perfect. It's about something bigger than that. So let's start there. What is what we have to keep in mind? Much bigger things. You got it. It's about authenticity, but also the nerves and the adrenaline. The LinkedIn post that you mentioned was a speaker from outside the U.S. saying that he dreaded presentations and got very nervous and was asking for advice on how to assuage the nerves. And I read this post, read many of the comments, and was reminded of something I was told by a veteran speaker years ago 
that the moment you're no longer nervous, you need to get out of the business. And it's led me to a reasonably new concept in my speaking and training and consulting with clients that there's really three key elements that help you keep a connection, maintain your authenticity, and as a side benefit, help you deal with the nerves. And those three things are about staying curious, steering clear, which I'll go into more detail about, and staying real. And we are all so embedded in the self-help industry, it would be easy for me to say, well, Pilar, stay real, be you, be authentic. And that's it, and I know exactly, exactly. what to do, and it's so easy. You bet, yeah, we all intellectually know, sure, we should be real. But it's bigger than that. Your audiences want you to be a human. And if we were to take these three steps in reverse and address the stay real first, they don't want the speaker who is so perfected and so properly positioned in every single point on the stage that they feel they can't live up to that person's performance. They want someone who is genuine and who may even make a mistake or two. Or has an accent. Uh, Or has an accent. (laughs) Who knew? Exactly. Which is partly why American or Western speakers are so popular overseas in other countries. And I've spoken in other countries. They love that because we have an accent to them. Staying real for the aspiring speaker, the current speaker, or even the veteran speaker is often about seeking a way to make that connection that is genuine and that is clear and that is vulnerable. And often when we're so polished and so practiced, we forget how to be vulnerable or it's part of our performance to appear vulnerable. I was talking with someone recently in the speaking business who gave me feedback on a Las Vegas show that I was entertaining going to see. It was the David Copperfield show. And I said, how is it? Is it worth going to see? And the response was, well, you know, it's good. There's some amazing magic. And I thought, okay, what's the rest of that story? Well, it's awfully practiced, and you can tell he's done it 375 million times prior to the time that you're sitting there, and it looks very practiced. And I thought, wow, I wonder how many of my speeches appear practiced, and and I hope none. But it's about being okay with being human on the stage, whether it's being vulnerable or whether something happens with your slide and okay, it just happens and you roll with it, whether it's you don't say the exact practice perfect three points in a poem that you intended to convey, that's okay. Are you meeting the audience where they are right now? And part of the ability to achieve that is that first point that I mentioned, which is staying curious. Before we go to that one, let's stop in in the third one for a minute. Mm -hmm. You have to practice to be natural sometimes. (laughs) The challenge is not to show it, right? Because a lot of times it's like, who is this person? And if you are talking about nerves and how do you deal with that, you have to know yourself and... You have to be comfortable with yourself, I think, mm-hmm. and and dare I say, you have to like yourself, and, and this is where we get into confidence and self-esteem, and pr- if you're practicing being yourself, you inevitably end up not being authentic. It's something quite natural to just be yourself. The barrier we find is most people are concerned that others may not like 
what's natural. So in that, you create a lot of stress and a lot of tension, a lot of bravado, and you end up covering up who you are, and people see something that's not authentic. The more practice you have on stage, the more practice you have in speaking, the more you're doing what you're best at, the more likely it is you're going to have that sense of comfort. You're going to do away with the barriers and the bravado and dare I say the BS. <laughs> it's not going to come about. There won't have you won't have a need to be practicing. You'll just be sharing part of who you are. And understanding what audiences respond best to that is mixed into that need to be curious or that recommendation that I have to be curious. Always seeking to understand more about your audience. And that then gives them interest, usually, in understanding more about you. When you're interested in where they are, what they need, what makes them tick, what's what's their way of learning, what's the best way to reach them with this message, rather than you just giving your speech, no matter who they are, mm -hmm. then they feel compelled, usually, to learn more about you because you've taken the time to want to learn more about them. How do you do that? If we, we can share some of the specifics, mm -hmm. especially you have spoken in 26 countries, it's different, different cultures, but it's not only about the culture. Mm -hmm. Every single audience is different. So how do you do that? Treat every single audience <laughs> as different. Yeah. <laughs> Whether you're speaking in Singapore, I spoke in Singapore not long ago to a breakout room of 1,700 people or some very large number, and I still... Even though the cultures are different, the audience responses are different, the audience needs certainly are different. Now, this is a group of HR professionals. I could have assumed they have the same issues as the HR professionals to whom I speak in the U.S. But I asked a number of questions before, during, and after. And I spoke individually to audience members, which in a room of 1,700 people is, is a a feat, to be sure. But when you ask about specifics, it's those needs analysis questions we all ask, or we have people in our offices ask, what do they need to do different as a result of this speech? What do you want them to do with the information? What takeaways do you want them to have? What are the barriers they're currently facing that you want me to address in this presentation? Whatever one's needs analysis questions are, or pre-event questionnaire questions. But then in the audience, when speaking, making as much one-on-one -on -one eye contact as possible. Whether that you do that from a stage, which is where you're most comfortable, or you get off the stage and walk around, which is controversial, some do, some don't, it's about understanding your audience to such a degree that you know where they need to stretch, where they need to grow, and where they would prefer that you not venture into, say, uncharted waters. Oftentimes I will leave the stage and I'll walk in and among the audience if it's a thousand people or less usually and depending on the setup of the room and all of those dynamics and that allows me to connect with them but also to understand at a very different level how they're responding to what I'm saying and allowing myself to be absolutely focused on that audience right then and there. Being present. Very present thinking, as we all do, in my head, okay, what did I just say? What am I saying right now? What am I about to say? Which is the conversation <laughs> that goes on in all of our heads as we're speaking. And simultaneously looking at Susie or Bobby or Frank or Bill, and I, I try to get as many names in the room as I can and, and use them, looking at the reactions on their face, looking at are they 
tracking with me? Is the head nodding? Are they looking back at me, or are they trying desperately not to make eye contact with me because they don't get it or they're not interested? And and that you hope is not the response. But when you speak of specifics. As a speaker, if we can stay curious, always wanting to know more about our audience, always wanting to know more about what they need, what they want, what they like, whether that's before, during, or after the presentation, there are a number of ways to get at that information. The challenge I find is many people don't maintain their curiosity; they work more on their confidence, and. The controversy or the the contradiction here is that the more curious you are, the more it will build your confidence because you know more about your audience. You're not walking in blind, and you know more about yourself too. That tends Why to be works. a nice side benefit. Absolutely, yes. and and wrapped around all of this. When you're dealing with nerves and and confidence, and new speakers ask me this question a lot. You know, how do I get over that? Well, you don't want to get over that. You want to maintain that. It's about channeling that energy and that nerves and that adrenaline. If you dread it, then the reality is you might be in the wrong business. If you see it as a challenge and look forward to that charge, that adrenaline, and you channel that to stay curious about your audience, and you continue to focus on still being who you are and real. Then the third element is steering clear of a lot of these, uh, as my friend Jessica Pettit calls, sparkly chickens. Distractions, distractions. <laughs> Whether we call them, you know, squirrel or chicken or ooh look a rabbit or hey I want some cake or wow a banana. However we describe that, there are so many distractions in this business that we can get off track and sabotage ourselves because you are at your best when you're doing what you're best at. So this distraction of well maybe I should start a coaching practice. Well, you, if you really don't like coaching, then then why are you doing that? Well, because someone told me I should. Well, that's a distraction. Maybe I should start speaking on how to basket weave while underwater in from a deep sea fishing boat. Come on, if that's not what you're best at. Yet revenues down. You're, you're trying to reach out to do other things. Well, you're never going to be as good at what you're not best at, no matter how much you practice. So part of staying authentic is staying true to what you're best at, and finding the audience members that resonate with that, and finding the audience members who would find that valuable. And that's, I think, a key evaluation piece that many times we as speakers will forsake for. The sparkly chicken. You know, what's the newest, latest, greatest topic? What's the newest, latest, greatest delivery method? What's the newest, latest, greatest uh, social media channel that I should be jumping on and, and connect to my phone and my desktop and my laptop and, and follow in in complete um, enthusiasm? Well, if, if that's a sparkly chicken taking you away from what you do best at, then you'll watch the trends of your business decline or change in ways you may not be pleased with. And that's not the staying curious that we are talking about. It's no. not trying it at all. No, not at the same time. Not at the same time. You can try different things in different parts of your career, and timing is important. But if you are consistently staying curious, steering clear of those distractions, and staying real, truly real, 
then what you'll find is you have a long-term sustainable business that continues to attract and evoke raving fans that want to pay you to be more connected to you more often. So this has been wonderful. Thank you for sharing this. Monica Wofford, a pleasure to have you here. My pleasure. Thank you. And stay authentic. Welcome to VOE. And today, Craig Price, speaker podcaster with his podcast, Reality Check with Craig Price, is here to speak to us, to talk to us about those secrets of something that for some of us sound mysterious and difficult and like over there we want to do, but we don't know how. We will find out and we will talk to him about all these little tricks because we all can have our own podcasts. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, welcome. I, I need a reality check on how to do podcasting. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the reality is it's a lot easier than people think. Uh, I think a lot of people think it is this mysterious, difficult, technological thing, and that's because for years, the only time you could ever get your voice out there was if the radio station asked you to. So now, all of a sudden, you can do it from your house, and it's so much easier and so much cheaper than it was five, 10, 15 years ago. Let's start to talk a little bit about what do you need, where to start, equipment. We always see those pictures of uh, people that are doing podcasts and they have everything, and microphones. And well, sure. Do you like, need all that? No, of course not. No. Uh, it, but it's like when you see pictures of cars, nobody posts their 2001 Toyota <laughs> Corolla that's got 60,000 miles on it that they've never used, but that's they always post the Maseratis, the, the, the Ferraris, the, the cool-looking cars. The ones at the dealership that yes. they don't own. The ones they rent or lease. Oh, God. Or <laughs> okay, yes. yes. Not the ones they own. And, and so when you see a lot of podcasting pictures, it is. It's a lot of boom mics with swing arms and huge boards and all these people with microphones. And it's really... It can be that difficult if you want to be. Some people are perfectionists and they really want a top-notch, uh, broadcast quality podcast. But you can do it as simple as a smartphone and earbuds. I know uh, several people who actually use their voice memo on their iPhones and their earbuds because that microphone is actually quite good. Um, and they record it because now do they do major interviews for a long over a long period of time? No, they do short, maybe five, ten-minute podcasts, and then post it up but it can be as difficult or as easy as you want it to be mm -hmm. and USB microphone is important if you oh, are yeah. going to interview someone that's because it's easy you just plug it into your laptop mm -hmm. and everybody's got a USB port um, and then you plug that in and if any software that will record and there's a lot of free ones you know I know on Mac they have GarageBand they have audacity for Windows these are free so you're not even paying for software I use a very old version of Adobe Audition from 2004. And it worked for you? It works for me, great, because I, I learned how to use it. Um, it does exactly what I needed to do, and it's visual for me, because it's very timeline oriented. So I can just plop in my WAV files, and I can see it, and it makes sense. I can just adjust it. and So for me, it works. So for somebody else, GarageBand works. It's a mystery to me when I see people use GarageBand, but I don't need that. <laughs> yeah, so it's whatever is comfortable you're already using. What kind of recordings should we be looking to do? And well, there's there's so many different formats. It's it's really I try to find things that will work with my schedule. You know, we're both busy speakers. We're all busy speakers, mm -hmm. and so to do something on a regular basis, like every day, every Tuesday at 11 a.m., is not possible for me because I don't know where I'm going to be week to week Tuesday at 11 a.m. Um, so certain podcasting distribution chains are set up that way. You have to be somewhere at a certain time. I like to record a bunch of 
podcasts in a, a day. I've got five scheduled for today uh, that I'll have, and that'll give me a month and a half worth of podcasts because I'll release them on a weekly basis. I stockpile them. Um, I try to make sure the content is evergreen, which means it's available whatever they listen to. It works to it. at any moment. Yeah. Now, I will have current event topics that I know that will only be useful for a couple weeks because of the event that's going on or the, the issue at hand. But overall, I try to keep it so someone three years later, they can download my conversation with you and that they go, works. oh, that still is relevant today. And you mentioned that you travel a lot. You cannot be there every day at this time, but it's important to be consistent. Oh, absolutely. The release date. The release. And the release time has to be consistent. It's, think about it as, um, I always say it's like Netflix and network television. When they find you, the first time they hear your podcast and they see that you have a back catalog, they'll download it and binge listen to you for you know, how many episodes you have. But once they catch up, now they're, it's turned into network television again, and now you have to be somewhere at a certain time or they will lose interest because every day, every Tuesday, 7 a.m., I have that podcast. Now, you've chosen that time specifically for your audience. Is that right? Yeah, I pick Tuesdays because on Mondays, a lot of us are busy. Mm -hmm. You know, we get into the office, we got work to do, and we're catching up on all the stuff we did over the weekend. But Tuesday, now you've gotten past your emails, you've got your week set up, now I can... I can download, and I do it at 7 a.m. kind of for the commuter crowd. I know a lot of people listen to their podcasts on the way to work. And so I do a 30-minute-ish podcast because the average commute is 26 minutes. So I do it for about 30 minutes. Um, sometimes they're an hour, which means they can listen to half of it. And then on the, other, on the way home, they can listen to the other half. So it's not weird where they're only listening to 75% and then they got to listen to the last five minutes on another time. Mm -hmm. But I do it every Tuesday, 7 a.m. so people can kind of load it up, head to work, and they can listen to it when they have time, which most people do in the car. And Craig uh, speaks about leadership and this is not his topic. It's not like you speak about technology. Uh, but you use it when you speak in associations. You use the podcast and the interviews ahead of time. What is the process that you are using yeah. in order to leverage that? When I get booked, I do a lot of keynotes for associations. So what I'll do is I'll, about six weeks before, I'll look at the roster of breakout speakers, not keynoters, because keynoters get everybody's attention. Breakouts, we, we've done breakouts. We all have to, especially here at NSA, we're starving to, uh, for people to come to our session where there's people cutthroat. It's, yeah, mine it can, is good. It can get pretty nasty. It's like, right, come to me. People actually standing outside of other people's doors, shoving them towards you. But with breakouts, because they don't get everybody's attention, if there's three breakouts, 66% of the audience is not going to see them. Um, I like to focus on something that would work not only for the association, but for my listenership. I find something interesting that I think is good and I will highlight that speaker, I'll bring them on, I'll interview them about six weeks before, and then I'll package that podcast, release it, and send it directly to the meeting planner, who now has a polished, professional Perfect. marketing piece that they didn't have to work one second on. Um, that's the key part. And they, they don't, don't, and they don't know you're gonna do this. I, well, the ones that rehire me now have an idea, but whenever I do it with a new one, they're always surprised and pleasantly because, like I said, they didn't have to do any work for something that, is, to them, is something that is involved and it's very intensive. It may be time intensive, and it's really, it's more the interview and the time to take the interview. So they're excited about it, and they send it out to their folks, people listen to it, and they get excited about the, not only the person that I'm interviewing, but all of a sudden, hey, that Craig guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about. But it, I don't yeah, no, I don't. I don't. Um, but 
he's I can't wait to see him and the breakout. You are giving, you are helping them promoting. I'm giving an added value without being promotional to myself. But it takes time also because you mentioned something before the interview that some people do seven podcasts and then they just don't do anymore yeah. because they don't work. It's called pod fading. It's a, it's a widely known and, and issue that every podcaster goes through to, at some point. Um, but statistically, 50% of all podcasts end after seven episodes. At seven, a lot of them quit because the numbers aren't there. Mm -hmm. I always tell speakers especially, if you don't have a platform, podcasting won't make you, give you a platform. Mm -hmm. But if you have a platform, you can definitely grow it much better with a podcast. This interview with Craig Price about podcasting is available in its entirety on video. I want to encourage you to take some time to get a little bit more insights and some of the bonuses that Craig shared with us during our taping. And now a presidential conversation with Ruby Newell Legner. Pilar, it has been a blast to be a part of Ruby's team as we've worked together on VOE, uh, but it's been kind of crazy trying to schedule time with her. She's been bouncing all over the world. I was going to interrupt you when you said that, Stephen, because it has not been easy tracking me down to get these recordings done. So just go with what you said. I like that. Yeah. Uh -huh. But it's for the right reasons. You have been visiting different countries. And I cannot believe it's already July. It's, it looks like yesterday when we were planning our first VOE. Gosh, 18 months ago. Can you believe that, that this process takes that long? And here we are to hear... How has this year been for you? Oh my gosh, it's, well, yeah, where do I start with that one? You know, one of the reasons that I became a speaker was really to make a difference and share some of the insights and some of the mistakes that I have made to save other people from making them. And as uh, a leader for NSA, I feel like that was my, I continued on that journey and that was my goal. You know, as an ambassador for NSA, I really wanted to do that and make sure that I learned through the process. And, and boy, have I had some invaluable elements to learn and uh, observations and people have taught me so much during this journey and what a pleasure it's been you know I've really enjoyed every chapter visit every conversation with the members you know um, every every educational event that I attended really taught me valuable lessons about life and both personally and professionally I, I feel very blessed to have had this opportunity to to be your ambassador for NSA and we have really admired the way that you have been that ambassador for us. Uh, you know, I'm thinking back a year ago in July when you gave your very first message as the president of NSA, you had, you had something in mind that was very important to you, and that was to give some clarity in the message to the members. Do you, do you remember what it was that you said? Absolutely. You know, it was an interesting journey just to present that presentation because there was such specific things that I wanted to say. And probably the biggest one that I wanted to remind everybody who was in the room that day that, you know, everybody 
who listens to this VOE, everyone who um, goes to the conventions, everyone who is, they really are NSA. They are representing NSA every single day they are out there in the world and as a professional speaker. So, you know, um, everybody listening into this VOE today is a member of NSA and, and they are NSA. They may not all be members, but certainly by listening to this around the world and, and getting to meet with us and have attend the meetings and, and benefit from Speaker Magazine and from all the wonderful educational programs that we do have it really is all about you know being being part of a bigger community you know some of the listeners who um, are listening today never get to attend the meetings but they may attend their own local uh, you know country association if they do have one and, and that's really exciting too to know that I got to visit them learn about their associations and gosh those lessons have been so powerful and truly NSA is loved around the world and we really do uh, support all of the different international things that are going on and all, all the associations that help spread that love and that make that bigger pie for Cabot you know really does all fit together very nicely you know um during my last recording here, what I really wanted to do is thank all the people that are truly behind the scenes that we don't really see that often. There's been so many volunteers that really made our educational programs great. Um, uh, Pilar and Stephen, you've done a great job with VOE and helping get us a variety of information and, and doing it in a fun conversational way so that we can learn and pop that CD in the car or listen to the app and, and really makes a big difference. Also, there's so many people that are at headquarters and, and NSA headquarters, Tempe, Arizona, that are behind the scenes working for all the things that we represent and creating um, a really great association that builds that community every single day. You know, I, I, finally, as a, a closing remark, what I really wanted to remind everybody is that, you know, you get out of NSA what you put into it. and that was a very valuable lesson that I learned early on as a volunteer and, you know, eventually became a board member and, you know, for my local chapter and continue to be involved however I can there and, and then, you know, step forward with the, the opportunity to be on the board for NSA. And every single one of those opportunities to give uh, back to the association has come tenfold um, back in the, I, I've been saying my heart is full and my brain is so expanded so step up and get involved and really volunteer because that's where you really gain the most out of your NSA and you know process and your involvement in your membership hey and we're going to be in Phoenix before you know it uh, July 23rd through 26 we're going to commence on influence 2016 and I Gosh, I hope to see everybody there. It's going to be a great event. Absolutely. We are looking forward to it. And this is a great moment also to thank you for serving not only during year as uh, the president, but for all that you have done over the years for our association. Thank you, Ruby. I almost made it through without crying, and then you have to say that. <laughs> thank you, Pilar. It was my pleasure. <laughs> and thank you for allowing us also to serve and uh, to give for this opportunity to serve the NSA family. Stephen and I have enjoyed it, right, Stephen? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And we feel the same way that you do. The family is so much bigger for us. The, our hearts are full, and we've learned so much from you and from those who have contributed and volunteered to be a part of the VOE programming this year. So thank you again, Ruby, and thank you everyone who's helped make this happen. See you in Phoenix.
Welcome to the last edition of Two Sides of the Same Coin. It's been an interesting year for me, and I want to thank Stephen and Pilar for inviting me to host the segment. I had fun finding topics that speakers disagree on, and amazingly enough, I had trouble every month deciding which side of the coin I land on myself. So to add a little twist this time, I didn't tell the two speakers who's representing the other side, but rather just asked him to take a stand. It proves to be very interesting, so let's get to it. The final topic is, do you believe that a speaker's primary focus should be on marketing and selling? First up to share his thoughts is Dave Averin, known as the Visibility Coach. He is a marketing guy to the core with several books on the topic to his credit, including his brand new one called Visibility Marketing, the no-holds-barred truth about what it takes to grab attention, build your brand, and win new business. Welcome, David. There's a great saying that says doing business without promotion is like winking at somebody in the dark. You know what you're doing, but nobody else does. Listen, if you are a professional speaker, you get paid to speak. This is a business. You have to treat it like a business. And like any business, you have to market, you have to sell, you have to increase your visibility. Now, I'm not suggesting this is in lieu of talent or that talent is unimportant or great storytelling or great sellable value proposition and return on investment. It's all very important. But I hear people all the time say at the end of the day, it's about quality. And I disagree wholeheartedly. At the beginning of the day, it's about quality. You have to be good to make it in this business. But I also know, and you know, people who are very good at this, who are starving. Most people in our business starve because they don't have a process in place to market and sell their business on a consistent basis. They believe the lie that says, follow your passion. It's about your passion and your story. If you have something burning inside of you, I'm not saying it's in lieu of passion. I'm saying passion gets you up in the morning. Passion gives you the energy to do what you do, but you make a living. You feed your children. You pay your mortgage through business and gigs. We love it when people come up to us and they hand us and say, do you have a card? Oh my gosh, that was so great. Yeah, that's a gift. That's because you did a good job. But to do this on a consistent basis, our sales cycle is eight to 18 months out. We are selling all the time. We're sending brochures. We're doing 30 pitches a week in our office. We're sending books. I'm not famous. But my visibility is increasing exponentially because we do outward bound sales and marketing. My job is to knock it out of the park on the platform. But for my team and what I did for 10 years on my own before I had a team was to sell and market what I have. So, yes, I do believe a speaker's primary focus should be on marketing and selling. Next up to share his side of the coin is Joe Calloway, CSP. CPAE. Joe helps business leaders, owners, and entrepreneurs make great companies even better. He's the author of six books, and although Joe has been inducted into the Speaker's Hall of Fame, he doesn't do traditional speeches. Instead, Joe actively engages people in highly interactive keynotes that challenge assumptions and create new ways of thinking. Welcome, Joe. The key word here is primary, and that's all I take issue with. Should a speaker do marketing and selling? Sure, of course. But should marketing and selling be your primary focus? No, and not just no, absolutely no. I shake my head when I hear a speaker say, Joe, my speech is great. I don't need to make my speech better. I just need to sell my speech. Okay, your speech is great. But when people hear it, it doesn't sell more speeches. What? That's about as big a disconnect as you can have. Listen, the quality of the speech 
is what sells the next speeches. Over 20 years ago at NSA, a great legendary speaker that most of you listening to this will not remember or never have even heard of, Bob Murphy. Some of you remember Bob. Bob said to me, Joe, you know, I go give my speech. I try to make each one a little better than the last and people just find me. I don't even have a business card. I just tell everybody I'm in Natchitoches, Texas, and they seem to find me. Now, I don't know if you can get away with that in this day and age, but I do know this. If you're good enough, the people in your audiences will burn up the internet talking about you, and you'll be a client magnet. Now, I devote part of every single week to marketing probably about 10% of my time and attention. The other 90% is absolutely laser beam focused on what gets me work, grows my business, and keeps me in business, which is knocking the socks off the next audience. I mean, dude, if there's 500 people in your next audience, that's 500 sales calls you're making when you do your speech. That is your marketing. So, no, marketing and selling should absolutely not be the focus of your attention, time, or energy. And that's a wrap. I'm Lori Guest. Thanks for listening. This is Voices of Experience announcer Sam Newton. It's time to wrap up this edition with VOWE. Now your hosts, Stephen Iverson, CSP, and Pilar Ortiz. This is our farewell edition. I cannot believe this experience, co-hosting Voices of Experience. It's now coming to an end. I agree, Stephen, the fastest year ever for us. It seems like yesterday when I shared with you and with our listeners in September how taking this opportunity was a personal challenge for me. You can listen to that part on the September edition and I had to overcome some fears to do it. I am very grateful I said yes because producing this audio magazine has been not only an opportunity but an honor and a learning experience besides that meeting you Stephen and working Working with you has been also fun. It has been fun, and I do remember that very first time we met, less than 24 hours before we began the recording of some of the interviews that have just been so outstanding this year. And I remember saying to you, I don't, I don't know if you remember it, but I remember saying to you that maybe by the time we finished, I would be able to speak a little Spanish because I didn't know how to then. I remember, Do you remember that. I remember perfectly. <laughs> yes, yes, you wanted to learn some words and I know you have. Yes, that was one of those goals. Yes. It was one of my goals, and, and I approached it with a little fear and trembling as well. But Pilar, I, I do have something I want to tell you. Ha sido un placer trabajar contigo en este año y amigo. Oh, wow, I am so proud of you. That sounded perfect. The perfect pronunciation. What did you say? In English, oh, I mean, I, me I, I, I understood perfectly, but uh, let's translate it for our listeners. You want me to translate it? Okay, well, let me see if I got this right. 
Pilar, it's been a pleasure to partner with you this year and an honor to call you my friend. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. And we are very thankful we had this opportunity to spend a whole year with you, our listeners, our colleagues, our friends. It has been amazing. We want to thank you for listening and for making us a part of your monthly routine and for checking out those videos that we were able to create for you as well. And we also want to extend our gratitude to everyone who shared their time and their ideas in, in every of the 70 plus interviews that we recorded also want to say thank you to Lori Guest for her segment, Two Sides of the Same Coin. What a fabulous approach of looking at our business from different perspectives. It's been truly so much fun to listen to that. Yes. We also want to say thank you to our production team, who behind the scenes really helped us with the production of the VOE. And to Rocky Hayer, our expert in audio for making us sound so great. And Pilar... Now we get the opportunity to pass the microphone on to the fabulous, outstanding Kate Delaney, who's going to be the new VOE host for 2016-17. And she's already preparing a lot of interviews and surprises, and she will bring her personality and her energy. So we wish you, Kate, the best. And special thanks to Ruby Newell-Legner, CSP, president of NSA, for giving us this amazing opportunity. To the NSA headquarters' wonderful team for always being there for us. And of course, to our own chapters for their support and their ideas, the Kansas City chapter and the Central Florida chapter. Yeah, our chapter has been very supportive and helpful and very gracious in understanding that our work for the VOE needed to take some priority over some local things, and yet they've just been there to carry us through. And I think it might be very good for us, Pilar, to say thank you to two other people who have been behind the scenes and probably heard more of VOE than anybody else, and that would be our spouses. So I want to say thanks to, to your husband, Bruce. Oh. Because he's been so supportive. That's so true. And thank you to Brandy, your wife, because I'm sure they have been learning a lot by listening to us. <laughs> and true. of course, at the time, very, very nice. Well, through this year, we have heard so many tips and techniques, literally practical things that we could do right away. We've heard different ways of growing the business and becoming better in what we do. More importantly, we've heard over and over again the the value of building relationships, meeting people that get what we do, friends who have become friends for life. And that is priceless. That is what NSA is all about. We cannot wait to see everyone at Influence 2016 in Phoenix. And as Stephen said, now we will be able to go to the main sessions and to the breakout sessions, right, Stephen? That's right. I'm looking forward to seeing that and experiencing it again this year. We say that because for us, uh, Las Vegas last year and Washington, D.C., we were doing a lot of this pre-production for VOE. So that's why we are saying that, that behind the scenes that people don't know happened during the <laughs> events. So we hope to see everyone there, do whatever you have to do in order to be there to everyone. 
Hasta pronto y muchas gracias por todo. Gracias and thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.